0: We will be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I want to read the whole chapter. It's not a very long chapter. I'm not going to preach the whole chapter. I'm actually just going to really focus on one verse, although we'll use information from the whole chapter to help us understand this one verse. And when we get to that one special verse, I'll let you know. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you." who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Hopefully that sounds familiar from this morning verse 13 for i do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened but that as a matter of fairness your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness and notice the fairness here is not that everybody has the same thing but that everybody gets to take Uh, An opportunity to help somebody else. There's fairness in, or we should say, a reciprocal relief between the churches. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, and here's the verse, As for Titus... He is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. I think the New American Standard says, and the glory of Christ. I think the King James says, to the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Let me read that verse One more time, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your Word. We pray that you would bless your church. Lord, we are so excited to see your church grow and flourish and function biblically. Lord, we know that you are honored by biblical churches. Not necessarily big churches, but biblical churches. Lord, we want to worship you and honor you because this is your church. So help us now to understand the text. We love you and we thank you for your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. God's infallible Word teaches that both in the Old Covenant theocracy of Israel and in the New Covenant community of spiritual Israel, that is the church, God promises to bless those who will invest financially into the ministry of His kingdom on the earth. Now there are some differences. In the Old Testament, for example, and this is a text that is commonly misused. I'll read from Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. God says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing. And we usually stop there and say, so you should tithe. Let's finish the text, until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So here in this Old Covenant promise, as with the bulk of the Old Covenant promises made to the physical nation of Israel, the blessings that come from the uh, investment into the house of the Lord, the blessings are purely what we would call temporal. They would have fruits in the soil. Their vines would would bear fruit. As the nation honored God, He would bless their land. He would bless their soil. He would bless their crops. And they would have physical blessings poured out upon them if they would obey the Lord in this matter. Now, when we come to the New Testament, what we would expect to see is exactly what we see. Fulfilling that physical shadow are spiritual realities, spiritual blessings. In the church, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 10, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And notice this agricultural reference. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So we're thinking seeds and ground and agriculture. But notice he goes on to say, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, the context there... Prior to this, this section, the verse that I didn't read, and closing this section, he's talking about giving your money to the church, investing financially in the needs of the local congregation. And he says, when you do this financially, when it comes to New Testament giving, the promises are not physical health and wealth and prosperity. That's heresy. The promises, the blessings are spiritual blessings. Because when you give money to the local church, you are investing in your own spiritual growth. What's sad is that many in our day who profess to be Christians are not near as concerned about their spiritual growth as they are their 401k. You're investing in your spiritual growth when you invest financially in the ministry of the local church. And those who don't understand this really are living their best life now. And that's why they can't see the benefit of spiritual blessings. Now, with this kind of financial opportunity, we see it in the Old Covenant, we see it fulfilled in the New Covenant, with this financial opportunity comes great responsibility. And as we heard this morning, we're not stewarding our own things, especially in the church. We are stewarding those things entrusted to us by the Lord Jesus in His absence to be stewarded for His kingdom. And so we see how this responsibility sort of boils up in Acts chapter 6. The church is established, people are being gathered into the covenant community, and we have a problem. There are some widows who are not being fed. Money is coming in, Money is being distributed. It's supposed to be distributed for their care. And yet, they've just somehow, in the, in, in the mix of things, in the busyness, these widows have not been taken care of as they ought. And it is a matter of financial stewardship in the early church. And in that section, we, we see the selection of what we might call the, the proto-deacons. The first men who come in to fill this role of, of leading servant... And the primary role of the the diaconate is the financial stewardship of church monies. Making sure the money that is given and the investment that people are making into the covenant community and into the kingdom of Christ is stewarded well. Now throughout the New Testament we see that same need addressed regularly. Our uh, responsibility to take care of one another in the church financially, to fund the ministry of the church And while not exclusively referring to the deacons of a specific congregation, in the passage that I've read from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we learn something of what the Holy Spirit says about those who would undertake to steward the church's purse. I'll read the verse again. As for Titus, this is chapter 8 verse 23, As for Titus, he is my partner, and fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Now I want to focus on these brothers under three headings. Number one, I want to look at the context in which we find these men. Number two, we'll look at the character of these chosen men. And number three, we will see the culmination of their work. So the context in which we find these men, the character of these chosen men, and the culmination of their work. First then, the context in which we find these men, these so-called brothers. During this time in Jerusalem, there were Christians suffering under great trials, whom the Apostle Paul had undertaken to assist by dividing out the burden for their care amongst the churches to whom He ministered and then gathering from those churches their contributions and taking it to Jerusalem. That's the context. Now let me show you that from the Scriptures. From this very chapter we can see in verse 4 that the churches in Macedonia were begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They wanted to help in this relief. Well, what were these saints suffering from? Well, the New Testament, I think, tells us that there was at least poverty and persecution in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 11, verse 28, Agabus stands up. He's a New Testament prophet and he prophesies. He says that it was foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And Luke, the author, adds, this took place in the days of Claudius. As a matter of fact, there were numerous famines during this time period between the years of 41 and 54 AD. Numerous famines in this area of the world fulfilling the prophecies of our Lord that there would be famines after His ascension and troublesome times throughout the, the current church age. So because of famine... the Christians in Jerusalem were suffering from poverty. We also know that they were being persecuted. In Acts chapter 1, or Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Luke writes that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we read about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So what we can gather from these details is that during the time of the writing of most, if not all, of the New Testament... Jerusalem and the Christians who lived in Jerusalem were persistently, consistently suffering under severe trials. They were going through the testing of their faith. They were suffering saints in Jerusalem. And so in light of the suffering saints in Jerusalem, spearheaded by the Apostle Paul, the broader church takes it upon herself to take part in the relief of the saints. Now remember that Christ had told His disciples in John chapter 13, By this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A distinctive mark of Christian discipleship is love for the brethren. And a distinctive mark of Christian love is meeting the needs of the brethren as opportunities arise. And so Paul taught in Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, I've already read, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That is especially the church. So Christ had commanded that you are to love one another. And Paul says, as you have opportunity, help one another. This is a, a, a manifestation of the love that Christians have for one another. And so immediately, in the earliest times of the Christian church in Jerusalem, we see this love played out in the church. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 45, it says, we, "...they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need." In chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now this was not an ecclesiastical communism like the Yellow Deli cult down the street The New Testament is very clear in its commands to work for a living, to earn your own living, that any man who will not work should not eat. Here, those who had need were the ones being cared for. In Acts chapter 7, or chapter 6 rather, they're taking care of the widows. That's women whose husbands had died. They could not care for themselves. In the book of James, he references taking care of widows and orphans. That is, again, those who are helpless and cannot care for themselves. In 1 Timothy, Paul urges that parents, aged parents, and widows are to be entrusted back into the care of their families so that the church would not be bothered by their needs. So, this, again, this is not communism. But we see this immediately in the early church. The Christian love for the brethren comes in and they begin to take care of those who are poor, those who have needs. And as we continue to read the New Testament, and as this suffering and persecution continues, the obligation to care for the afflicted brethren continues. And in Acts chapter 11 and verse 29 it says, So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea." So there were suffering saints. Here we have an ecclesiastical burden. The church comes in to take care of those who are in need. They determine to send relief to the brothers. That's the plan. So how is it carried out? How are we going to get the money to the brothers in Jerusalem? Well, we get a little bit of the, a glimpse of Paul's plan in his first letter to the Corinthian church. He addresses the exact same issue in that first letter in chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Now notice, this was an instruction for numerous churches. It's not just one. The churches of Galatia were taking part in this also. Notice that he assumes that the church will be meeting on the first day of the week. At these meetings for public worship, one part of their public worship was to be the setting aside of some of their money for the relief of the saints as they prospered. And Paul would send some chosen men to carry that money to Jerusalem. That's the plan. So we talk about these brothers. And the context in which we meet these men is suffering saints in Jerusalem, an ecclesiastical burden to come to their aid, and an apostolic method for getting the contributions to them by selecting qualified men. Secondly, I want to notice the character of these chosen men. We see the context now, the character of these chosen men. As with any financial matter, integrity is absolutely vital. Not only to ease the consciences of those whom you are compelling to give, but also to ensure that the designated gifts make it to where they're supposed to go. And so beginning in verse 16, Paul begins to describe the men that he's going to send, and here what he's doing in essence is what he's been doing throughout 2nd Corinthians. He's defending himself. He's defending the plan by describing these men to this church. The first one he names is Titus. In verses 16 and 17 he says, Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but... Being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord." Titus. In verse 23 Paul says, "...he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit." We know that we have a New Testament epistle, Paul's epistle to Titus. And we learn at that point that Paul had entrusted Titus with the establishment of churches on the island of Crete. In other words, Titus was obviously a very trustworthy man according to the Apostle Paul. The second man that we meet, I'm calling the preacher. In verse 18, Paul says, With him, that is with Titus, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. This brother is unknown. We don't know his name. And commentators go back and forth or, or say it could be you know, A, B, or C. They'll list several names. But we don't know who it was. What we know is that this man was famous in all of the churches and he was famous for one thing, preaching the gospel. And so we have... Titus, a man trustworthy enough that Paul would leave him in Crete to establish churches. We have the preacher, a man who will go down for the rest of human history at, at no, at known in no other way as, except famous in all of the churches for preaching the gospel. As an aside, we should aspire to that. As people, individuals, as men who aspire to preach as a church, may our name be forgotten. May we be that church known among all the churches for their preaching of the gospel. So we have Titus, we have the preacher, and then third we have the helper. I'm calling him the helper. Verse 22, With them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever, because of his great confidence in you. So here we have The helper, another unnamed brother, but we know that he had been often tested and found earnest. Paul and probably some other churches had put this man to the test often in many different areas of service, and they found in this man a true heart born passion to serve the churches. This was not a flash in the pan servant. This was not a man who would serve only in the areas where he was noticed. This was not a man who only wanted the pulpit or the platform where he could get his voice out. This was a man who was tested in many areas, in many matters, often, and found earnest. And notice it doesn't say that he was a preacher. We don't know that he ever had a public persona. We don't even know his name again. We just know that he was tested and found earnest. And now because of his confidence in the church at Corinth... He's more eager than ever to take part in this mission of getting contributions to the saints in Jerusalem. He's excited about what's happening in Corinth of all places. He's excited about that church. And so he wants to come to them and to take the contributions to Jerusalem. The point is this. These weren't just any old men. They didn't just say, can we have some volunteers of some men who are off... Uh, who can get off of work Thursday, Friday, and Saturday to take a trip to Jerusalem to deliver some money. These men were not chosen because they fit in with the good old boys club and because they had just always been around and they had chummed it up with the elders and so, well, we just put these men and give them this duty. They weren't chosen because of their entrepreneurial prowess. These men were chosen for this service of delivering money Because they exhibited, each one of them individually, the essential elements of what it means to be a godly man. Period. It doesn't even say they were good with money. But they were godly men. So that's the character of these chosen men. Number three, the culmination of their work. The culmination of their work. We have this great need in Jerusalem... We have this planned plan to send relief to the saints in Jerusalem by the hand of chosen men. Now we see that the men chosen are men of outstanding godly character and reputation among the churches. Now here's a question. Should these particular men execute this particular mission, what will they have accomplished? What's the culmination? What's the end of all this? Now we could say the saints in Jerusalem will get their money. They'll get the relief that they need, and that would be true. But I think the text that we read, specifically verse 23, but we'll look at others, I think this whole chapter seems to indicate that there's something greater at stake than just the completion of a mercy mission. There's more at stake here. There's something, believe it or not, more important than hungry or hurting believers. And that is the integrity of the church before God and men, which resounds to the glory of Jesus Christ. That's more important to Paul and these churches than just Jerusalem gets their money. Notice what he says in verses 20 and 21. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Now when he says we take this course, what he's saying is the reason that we've chosen these men and this particular plan, this, this operation to bring this money... We've chosen this way to do things so that no one should blame us about this generous gift. So that no one would charge the apostles with dishonesty. So that no one could come to the apostle Paul and say, well, I don't, I don't really know if he's being fully honest. You know, I've heard the tent business isn't doing so well. And I've heard that, you know, I bet... You know, I saw the apostle and he had a new cloak on. I bet he's putting his money in the purse. I bet he's taking a little bit off the top for himself. He says, we've taken this course so that nobody can say anything like that. Nobody can blame them about this generous gift. And here's the reasoning. For we aim at what is honorable... Not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. We aim at what is admirable, what is excellent. We aim at what is morally acceptable in the Lord's sight. By the standards... Of God Himself. In other words, He's saying the reason we're doing things this way and the reason we've chosen these particular men is because as an apostolic band, we want to be found impeccable in our service before the eyes of the one who sees all and will judge all. First and foremost, we want to be found doing what is honorable in the Lord's sight, but notice what He says, but also in the sight of man. He says we want to be found impeccable in our service before the eyes of the world who is constantly watching the church, chomping at the bit to find some accusation against the church. We want to honor the Lord, but we also want to honor or do what is honorable in the sight of men. And it is incumbent upon the church to carry out her ministry before the world in such a way that leaves no reproach from insiders and outsiders. Paul says in Romans twelve seventeen that we should give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. It's not just Christians. We don't just get together and say, well, we don't, we don't care what the world thinks. We need to do things in such a way that is honorable in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of man. They can say what they want to about our doctrine. But when it comes to our practice, especially in matters where we do business with the world, in the eyes of the world, it is to be carried out with honesty and integrity. And thus, we must have men of honesty and integrity to represent the church in this duty. So that's the first result. We've chosen this pathway and these men because we want the people on the outside to look at the church and say, I can't bring any reproach. They've chosen some honorable men. But secondly, and this is the ultimate culmination of their work, The first one leads to this one. And this is by far the most important aspect of all. Verse 23 again. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Now setting aside for the moment the fact that these men were not deacons in an official capacity. Setting aside for a moment the fact that that word messengers is actually the word for apostles. Lowercase a, messengers, delegates from the churches. And remembering just for the moment that these men have been chosen to carry out a financial stewardship. Paul designates these men messengers. What kind of messengers, Paul? Can you clarify? Of the churches. And they are the glory of Christ. And here the language indicates that reference to the glory of Christ is referring back to the messengers. The messengers themselves as they are messengers of the churches, are the glory of Christ. Now we know that glory is the physical manifestation of the perfections of God. It is the effulgence of all of His beauty shining forth, very often in blinding and unapproachable light, the glory of God. We also know that Christ, God in the flesh, is referred to as the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians 4 6, we read that we see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, we cannot see God, but when we see Christ, We see the glory of God shining forth in human flesh. Now, get this these messengers are the glory of Christ. So, at present, we cannot see the risen Christ reigning from His throne, building His church, walking in the midst of His churches, exercising, saving, and sanctifying power by His Holy Spirit with our physical eyes. We can't see it. But what we can see is men chosen by the church for their clear, undeniable, irreproachable character who serve the church before the eyes of God and men. And when we see these men, we are seeing the glory of Christ manifest on the earth. I'll quote Albert Barnes. In reference to this phrase, the glory of Christ, he says, That is, they have a character so well known and established for piety. They are so eminent Christians And do such honor to the Christian name and calling that they may be called the glory of Christ. It is an honor to Christ that He has called such persons into His church and that He has so richly endowed them. So here's the point. Those who are called, set apart by the church and charged with the duty of stewardship in the area of church finances, and who do so in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and honorable among men, are one means by which the glory of Christ is displayed on the earth. So then what do we do? That's doctrine. Here's application. Number one... If that is the case, then we as a church must hold biblically high standards for such men and such work. Biblically high standards. So let me read to you the standard given by the Holy Spirit of Christ for His church. Deacons likewise must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit sees no use in His church, in the church of Christ, for a man who is good in the business world solid with a weed eater. Maybe he's even intelligent with regard to financial matters, but who does not meet the qualifications listed here which deal primarily with his character as a man of God. In other words, if a man is not washing his wife in the Word, if a man is not leading his family in regular family worship and discipling his children, he's not qualified to be a deacon in the church of Christ. That's the standard. And we have to stick to it. We have to stick to the standard not just for us, not for our sake, for the glory of Christ. Because Christ's glory is at stake in the world. When men of questionable character or reproachable character go out into the world and are the face of the church. So that's the first application is we must stick, hold to these biblically high standards. And they are high standards. The only only qualification not listed for those who would serve as deacon is apt to teach. When it comes to the character of a deacon, he's no less than or not called to be any higher in piety than the elders of the church themselves. They're no different in that regard. So we have to hold that standard. We can't back down from that standard for any reason. Because the glory of Christ is at stake. Secondly... The second application flowing from this truth that men chosen by the church and set apart by the church to carry out the work of financial stewardship and who do so in such a way that is honorable to the Lord and in the sight of men resound to the glory of Christ. The second application then is that as needs arise, appoint such men. As the need arises, appoint such men. In the early church, needs arose which exceeded the abilities of the apostles, which detracted from the primary mission of the church to preach the gospel. And so as the issue of the unfed widows arose, the church was instructed to choose men who meet the standards to meet the need. And so the apostles... say say in Acts chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, it says they summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So what do we do? Hold to the standard and appoint such men as the need arises. So as was announced last Lord's Day, based on the nomination of Kyle Hendricks to the office of deacon over church finances, and upon many months of testing him, not only in specific financial matters that he would be dealing with, but also in numerous areas of administration and service, and upon the meticulous examination of his personal character and spiritual health, the elders would again like to officially put forth Kyle Hendricks to be appointed as the very first deacon of Covenant Bible Church. Now in case you're not convinced, this is just an aside, I just wanted to say it. We interviewed Kyle and Terry for, I don't know how long it was, on each of the qualifications For deacons. In 1 Timothy 3, we interviewed them both with regard to Kyle's own devotional life, with regard to his life before his wife and his children as a spiritual leader. We interviewed them both and him specifically about his understanding of the role that he would occupy. And based on what is probably around 30 years of experience in the office of deacon in various churches. One of the elders, who's still yet to be unnamed, one of the elders noted that he has never encountered a man more qualified for the office of deacon than Kyle Hendricks. So that's what the elders think that you should do. But again, it's up to the churches. So, if you will, if you agree would like to uh, place Kyle in this office, signify with the uplifted hand at this time. Okay. That's good. If you disagree, believe that Kyle is unfit for the office of deacon, you raise your hand. Okay. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 6, after setting apart these men, it says that these, referring to the men, they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So Kyle, if you'll come forward. And we're going to, as the, elder, the elders are going to come and lay hands on Kyle and pray for him. Uh, Just to qualify this act of ordination, we are not conveying upon Kyle some spiritual power. We're not touching him so that some electric spiritual uh, power is going to surge from our hands into him. This is purely an outward sign of a spiritual reality, namely that the church has set apart these men. And so the elders come now, and uh, we're going to pray over Kyle, and then I'll come back and close. So then... By the authority that is vested in this church by the one and only head of the church, the Lord Jesus, signified through the unanimous vote of the congregation and the laying on of hands, Kyle Hendricks is now what I'm calling deacon of financial integrity. If somebody can come up with a better name before we get all the business cards printed off, that'd be great. Um, just kidding. As he carries out his duties in godliness and as we as a congregation allow him to serve us in this capacity. And what that means is when it comes to financial stuff, um, general goings on with regard to the church. He he is, as as one deacon, he's actually going to be doing a lot more than finances. He already does a lot more than that. Um, But the way that you allow him to serve in this capacity is to go to him for stuff. Um, with these issues, with questions, with concerns, go to Him and let Him serve. He's good at it. Uh, Let Him serve in this capacity. But as He does this and as we allow Him to serve, may Christ receive the glory and may the Word of God increase and the number of the disciples multiply greatly. That's the point. All of this works to that end. So let's stand and we'll sing another song together. And then we'll dismiss.